If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Merry Christmas, friends, and welcome from Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. I'd like to invite our kindergarten through fifth graders to come join me for a Christmas story. Just come right on all the way up here. It's really good to see you this morning. What's going on? Oh yeah, come on, can we come on right over here? There's so much room. And you know, I guess if anyone else who's not in kindergarten through fifth grade wants to join us, you're welcome. There's plenty of room. Everybody gets to make their own choices, of course. Oh. I'm going to read us a story this morning. It's called One Christmas in Our Building. If you can't see the pictures, just tell me and we'll make it right. Hey, Jackie, come on. Are we ready? I snuggled into bed and closed my eyes. I'd waited a whole year and Christmas was nearly here. Every night I dreamed about opening my presents and eating a tasty turkey dinner. Dad and my stepmom, Susan, always wanted Christmas to be perfect. But so far, Christmas Eve wasn't going to plan. Dad didn't want me to see the presents under the tree until morning. Susan didn't think it mattered. They were both so grumpy that they started arguing. I drew a Christmas tree on the wall to cheer them up. But it only made them grumpier. Next, Susan started preparing the turkey for tomorrow's dinner and realized that it didn't fit in the roasting pan. I thought it was funny, but she didn't seem to think so. Why did you buy such a big one? Susan complained to Dad. Silly turkey. Poor turkey, I whispered. It's not your fault. We'll ask the neighbors if we can borrow a bigger pan in the morning, won't we, Emma, said Dad. Sure, I said. Susan just sighed. (sighs) The turkey was so big, it wouldn't even fit in the hallway of our building to stay, wouldn't even fit in the refrigerator. So she left it overnight in the chilly hallway of our building to stay cool. But on Christmas morning, 
The turkey was gone. Who would steal a turkey? Susan cried. We shouldn't have left it outside the front door, Dad sighed. We could just eat spaghetti, I suggested. No, we're getting our turkey back, they said together. Come on, Emma. And we set off around the building to ask about our missing Christmas dinner. We knocked on the first door, but sorry we haven't seen your turkey, said the Wilson Taylors on the third floor. We hope you find it, they called as we rushed downstairs. Sorry we haven't seen your turkey, said Mr. Singh on the second floor. Come and eat with us, offered Mr. Singh. But Dad and Susan were already hurrying down the stairs. Sorry, I haven't seen your turkey, said Mrs. Angel on the first floor. Besides, I'm a vegetarian she called as we dashed towards the front door. Where can we get another turkey, Dad wondered. We got in the car and drove all around town, but all the stores were closed. I couldn't help laughing. Y'all are like Mary and Joseph being turned away from every inn. This time, Susan and Dad both laughed, too. Looks like we should head back to our stable and have spaghetti for Christmas dinner after all, chuckled Dad. That won't be so bad, said Susan, smiling. Back at home, just as we were about to eat our Christmas spaghetti, the doorbell rang. Ding dong! Maybe some shepherds have come to visit our stable, I joked as I ran to open the door. It was our neighbors from the second floor. We were worried you might be hungry, so we brought you some lamb curry, Mrs. Singh said. Soon the doorbell rang again. Who could that be, Susan wondered. I opened the door and shouted, two kings are here. It was our neighbors from the third floor. We were worried you might be hungry, so we brought you a cake, the Wilson Taylors said. Soon the doorbell rang again. Who could it be, everyone wondered. I opened the door and shouted, now an angel has arrived. It was our neighbor from the first floor. I was worried you might be hungry, so I brought you some cookies, Mrs. Angel said. After our Christmas spaghetti, curry, cake, and cookies, we all sat around the Christmas tree playing and singing and laughing. For a moment, I wondered who stole our turkey. But it really didn't matter because everyone in our building was having a wonderful Christmas day together. The end. Let's pray together. Up on the housetop, the lights are a bit crooked. The stockings are hung, holy one, but not with much care. The kids put the ornaments on the tree, but we haven't had time to fix them. To be fair, it's not mattered much since the cat has pulled the tree over twice already. We are skidding in sideways to Christmas, Holy One, and it's not lost on us that we may not exactly be celebrating the reason for the season in all the ways you'd hoped we would. But we've made it to Christmas Eve when we read a story from the good book that isn't at all by the book. Talk about sliding in sideways. A long family road trip, we know how weird those can get, 
only to arrive at the inn to discover the person responsible for making reservations definitely didn't. They shall remain nameless. Followed by a birth witnessed by barnyard animals and celebrated by unshowered shepherds. Bless Mary's exhausted heart, she couldn't even say, Jesus take the wheel, since he was the baby in the manger. So maybe we're doing better than we think. Be with us, Holy One, as we remember that we don't have to be perfect to get it right. We pray in the name of Jesus, whose arrival was greeted with light, singing, and smiling faces, and it was enough. Amen. Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration that was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. When they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. I mentioned last week that I think Elizabeth is an excellent candidate for patron saint of our denomination, the United Church of Christ, because of her original extravagant welcome, offering hospitality to Mary when no one else would and she needed it most. Luke, though, Luke is a very good candidate too, very strong candidate, although for a different reason. Luke loves him some historical context, and the UCC is a really big fan of this too. It is in part why theological education is a requirement for ordination. We expect our preachers to do their homework. We understand historical context to be crucial to interpretation that is biblically responsible because as Marcus Borg explains, the Bible is an ancient collection of documents written in particular times and places 2,000 and more years ago. It was not written for us. Rather, it was written in the historical context of our spiritual ancestors in ancient Israel and early Christianity. Historical interpretation means setting those ancient texts in their ancient historical context. Historical interpretation focuses on what the texts meant in their ancient historical context. What did the words of Amos or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Job or Jesus or Paul mean? in their historical context? What were they saying to the communities to whom they spoke or wrote? A historical approach is immensely illuminating. Biblical texts come alive when we hear, read, see, and interpret them in their ancient contexts. And historical context is Luke's jam. In chapter 1, after four verses of greetings, Luke begins verse 5 by noting that this story takes place, quote, in the days of King Herod of Judea. 
And this is not a throwaway line. He is reminding his audience of the circumstances under which Zachariah and Elizabeth and Mary were living. He does this again in our lesson text for this morning, chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus. And that's our cue to do our homework. Theologian Obi Hendricks lays it out for us. In the opening decade of the first century, the emperor Augustus declared his reign to be Pax Romana, that is, a season of total peace in the Roman Empire. However, like all propagandists for injustice, Augustus neglected to note that the fruits of the peace he so ceremoniously proclaimed fell almost exclusively to the rich. Nor did he acknowledge that his peace was achieved and maintained by horrific political oppression. The irony of Rome's claims of Pax Romana, as scholar Klaus Winkst observes, is that Roman Empire produced terror and uncertainty and then offered itself as an active guardian of peace. It has been estimated that Augustus kept up to 100,000 legionnaires battle-ready at all times. Clearly, the Roman peace extolled by Augustus was no better than the false peace decried by the prophet Jeremiah. They have treated the wound of my people carelessly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. For despite the declarations of Augustus to the contrary, in first century Israel, there was no real peace. And life for Jewish subjects of the Roman Empire was hard and often dangerous. What the Pax Romana must really have been like for those forced to live under it is expressed in an anti-Roman diatribe recounted by the historian Tacitus. He says, we have sought in vain to escape the Romans' oppression by obedience and submissiveness. They are plunderers of the world. If the enemy is rich, they are rapacious. If poor, they lust for dominion. Not east, not west has satiated them. They rob, butcher, plunder, and call it empire. And where they make a desolation, they call it peace. Indeed, Josephus recounts that in Israel, the so-called Pax Romana was, in reality, a time of numerous violent uprisings against the Roman rule. One account by Josephus is worthy of particular note. He reports that at around the time Jesus was born, the Roman military crucified some 2,000 people in the Galilean city of Sepphoris as punishment for rebelling against Roman rule. There is no telling how long the crucified victims at Sepphoris' anger died before breathing their last. However, we can be sure that their screams and agonized moans would have been a lasting source of fear and terror and trauma for all who witnessed them, even for those who only heard descriptions about the horror. So that is what Luke is telling us when he says, in those days, a decree went out from the emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This is the weary world into which Jesus was born. As Reverend Christine Jacoan tells it, it is striking that the story of the nativity opens not with the glory of God, but with that all too familiar, ugly reality. Emperor Augustus is pulling the levers of power. He monetizes his authority by ensuring the highest tax grab possible. 
His decree requires that every single person, even the poorest of the poor, travel back to whatever God-forsaken place their family is from and register. So it doesn't matter that Mary is right up against her due date. For those who don't know, most healthcare providers recommend that pregnant people stay close to home in the third trimester, with the caveat that if you do need to travel at the end of your pregnancy, you'll want to know the locations of the nearest hospitals and medical centers. Most airlines won't even let you fly in the last month of pregnancy, and some limit travel as early as 28 or 29 weeks. Mary and Joseph have to schlep 90 miles while she is nine months pregnant. Such a safe and comfortable time to travel to the middle of nowhere, to a town where all the rooms are full. So lucky then Mary gets to give birth in a stable. The contrast between the power of Emperor Augustus and the powerlessness of Joseph and Mary could not be more stark. One might expect the birth of the Messiah would have a more pleasant beginning, or at least one where it looks like God is in charge instead of some narcissistic autocrat. But with that one little phrase, Luke sets the stage. Things were very, very bad. There was such little room for hope, such little room for peace, such little room for joy, such little room for liberation, such little room for love. But time and time again in this story, we discover there actually is room Every time we turn around, that's Luke's message. There is room for hope. There is room for peace. There is room for joy. There is room for love. God makes room. The season of silence with Zechariah makes room for awe and wonder, for him to find hope again. Mary's surprise visit to Elizabeth makes room for Elizabeth to rejoice. And Elizabeth's blessing makes room for Mary's voice for her to sing of the lowly being lifted up, the hungry being filled with good things, and the rich sent away empty. On the first Sunday of Advent, I noted that while I am indeed a big, big fan of Jesus, I am convinced that most of these stories are not about him, but about the people around him. And this makes me even more sure while the message of Luke's birth narrative is certainly that God makes room, it is also that God is counting on us to make room. Which brings us to the innkeeper, that poor dude. He's really gotten a bad rap over the years because he said, to adapt a line from Seinfeld, no room for you. But we don't know that he actually said that. We attribute that line to the unnamed innkeeper because, well, someone had to be on duty when Mary and Joseph entered the lobby, and someone had to not give them a room. But the text doesn't actually mention an innkeeper, only an inn, which means that we've made him up. 
much like the donkey that Mary probably didn't ride on from Nazareth to Bethlehem, she most likely walked, which sounds so unpleasant, that we felt we needed a donkey. <laughs> Scripture does not mention an innkeeper, so we made him up and then imagined the least generous narrative possible, turning him into the Grinch of Christmas Eve. But there are other interpretations, of course, not the least of which could be that the innkeeper refused to abandon the bedraggled couple. So he offered them the best he could, a place off the street and shelter from the elements. It may have been a stable, but it was enough for Mary to work with. As the text says, she wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger. There was, it turns out, room. There is a famously told Christmas story about a little boy who wanted to be Joseph in the nativity play, but he did not get the part of Joseph. But he did land the part of the innkeeper, and at every rehearsal he dutifully said his line, there is no room in the inn. On the night of the performance, however, instead of giving the expected no vacancy message when Joseph asked for lodging, the little boy playing the innkeeper said, sure, you can have mine. <laughs> and everyone laughed, of course. But perhaps this is the point of the biblical story. God is counting on us to do something anything to make room. Our story prompts us to ask how we can make room for the stranger, for generosity, for laughter and play, for rest, for the outcast, for the cat lady, for bedraggled parents and crying babies, for grace, for different experiences, for possibility, for tenderness, for others, for ourselves for the holy mystery, and for sacred moments. The world is indeed weary. From grief, war, a pandemic, political strife, personal and corporate failings, the list goes on. But we have a story for this. With God's help, we can make room for peace, hope, joy, and love. For the Bible tells us so. Merry Christmas, beloveds. Merry Christmas. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.